Hello, we're doing another four minutes of threads today and this episode is dedicated to all my patrons and Twitter followers who helped me during the week. I won't bore everyone with the story again but I need some serious uh, dental surgery plus sedation and it's going to cost me a lot. And I asked people on Twitter to consider dropping what I called uh, a tooth tip into my PayPal if they've ever enjoyed the podcast and wanted to help out. And lots of you did. I was absolutely knocked off my feet by everyone's generosity. I had also planned to sell my nuclear archive on eBay. I'd put photos of the best items on my Patreon, thinking I'd give the, the hobos first chance to buy some of it. Well, lots of my dear patrons were upset that I was selling my nuclear archive, and so some of them made a payment saying, here, consider this as me buying it and giving it back to you. A special shout out there to Kevin, who made a generous uh, tooth tip donation and said, okay, this is me buying your thread script, and here is me giving it back to you. Now that actually (laughs) made me cry. So I'm thankfully able to keep my thread script, and I have it here on the table beside me, as we begin our latest four minutes of threads, dedicated to all my kind listeners who have helped me with my dental costs. Thank you. In our last four minutes, Ruth took her terrible walk through the ruins of Sheffield, and the narrator told us of the approach of nuclear winter. In the last few seconds of the previous segment, Ruth had made it to Jimmy's house, but of course no one was there. No one except the corpse of Mrs Kemp. She died alone, having begged her husband to go out and find her some water. Well, in the next scene, we catch up with the valiant Mr Kemp. He is part of an angry mob who are shouting and battering at the padlocked and barbed wired gates of a food distribution centre. They are desperate and they are starving. We already know from the earlier parts of the film that Mr Kemp is mild-mannered and decent and polite and yet here he is raging and shouting and rattling at the gate. That's of course shock, trauma and animal starvation that's done that to him. Here's a clip. are ordinary citizens, of course, who are shouting and battering the gate. They're not criminals, they're not thugs. But they've been driven to arm themselves with metal poles and sticks and to pound and roar and batter at the gates, demanding food. The centre is being guarded by some very nervous-looking soldiers who try to warn the crowd via loudspeaker to disperse. But their petty little orders can't compete with the the roar of starvation and the fact that there are kids and wives and mums and dads at home starving, dying. They need food, anything, bread, soup, anything, biscuits, anything. Just open the doors, they scream. Open the door, give out the food. 
As Mr Kemp shouts through the bars of the gate, who are you saving it for? Well, exactly, Mr Kemp. Who are they saving it for? The authorities have stockpiled food to be used in the aftermath of war or some other national catastrophe. Well, here we are. So make with the food. Who are you saving it for? Well, this is where post-nuclear planning gets horribly cold and hard and practical. They are probably saving it for survivors. And by that I mean proper survivors. Those who are hardier, sturdier, tougher, stronger and more ruthless than the rest. When these tougher sorts have endured the immediate post-attack period, managed to scrape through and show that they are still standing, then they will also have shown themselves to be deserving of food, because these are the strong. These are the ones that will help rebuild. They will dig and build and shift rubble and drag corpses, and their reward will be food. The Opposite side of that coin is that their punishment for refusing to do all of that will be the withholding of that food. Food is now the currency. Food is gold and sparkling diamonds and glinting rubies. Food is a mansion on a hill, a supercar in the driveway, a private island in the Caribbean. Food is now the most valuable thing. Food is now everything. And so, will the authorities waste this uh, dizzyingly precious resource on the weak, those who are soon going to totter and stumble and die in the road? No, food will not be wasted. It is a precious resource. We see that same hard, practical approach in NHS planning too, where the guidance says that in the immediate aftermath of an attack, when radiation levels are still high, doctors and nurses will not be dashing out to help people because they too are a precious resource and obviously they cannot be easily replaced. Indeed, could they ever be replaced? It takes years of course to train and qualify and that's in an advanced and modern setting with books and equipment and medicines and lecture theatres and teaching hospitals. How can you possibly train replacement doctors and nurses? Although, um, and this is quite distressing, perhaps there would be no point in trying to train a new generation of doctors and nurses. Because what use would they be without their equipment and medicines and their clean, disinfected environments? Perhaps post-nuclear medicine would be stripped down to nothing more advanced than trying to uphold some kind of hygiene standards. Teaching people about cleanliness Relative cleanliness, of course. Trying to prevent the spread of disease, but maybe quite powerless to stop it and cure it. But back to our angry crowd at the food depot. The nervous soldier in charge issues a warning to the crowd. Disperse or we will use force. He also keeps repeating go back to your homes, which is futile. Or, as they might say on Twitter, he's showing his privilege there in assuming that they all have habitable homes to which they can return. One round, CS gas, face of cake. One round of that man. Four round of CS gas, face of cake. 
The crowd can't be pacified, so the soldiers don their gas masks and, on the order of their leader, fire CS gas canisters at the base of the gate, engulfing everyone in white smoke. But one rioter makes it over the barbed wire and he dashes towards the food depot. Again, an order is issued. One round at that man. And he's shot and he's killed. If we're looking for any signs of hope here, it's worth noting that the soldiers only respond, they only fire gas and they only fire rounds when they are told to. And at that point, they fire the correct amount of rounds at the correct places or persons. They're not panicking and going rogue and firing here, there and everywhere. So does this mean that the threads of civilization have not yet completely snapped? Well, no. Watching the scene again, we might say that those who are behaving with relative calm and those who are able to follow orders and not scream and cry are those who are, yes, part of authority. They are the ones securely inside the gate. They, the soldiers, will have a bed and a roof and a meal. So perhaps it's easier to stay in your role and do what's required of you if you're part of the club and know that you'll be looked after as long as you abide by that club's rules. Those outside the gates, well, they have nothing. And that means they have nothing to lose. So as long as the soldiers are kitted out with protective gear and are safe behind barbed wire and are going to be fed and watered, they can maintain discipline. That reminds me of something I saw on Twitter a few days ago, posted by the defence editor of The Economist, Shashank Joshi. He had been rereading The Face of Battle by John Keegan, and he tweeted this extract about an army's discipline and how quickly it can be lost. Inside every army is a crowd struggling to get out, and the strongest fear with which every commander lives, stronger than his fear of defeat or even of mutiny, is that of his army reverting to a crowd. I suppose another way of analysing the difference in behaviour here between the soldiers and the people is MI5's apparent theory that society is only ever four meals away from anarchy. So there, no matter how noble or placid or polite these crowd members might have been in their personal lives before the bomb dropped, they are now starving And starvation can wreck and scorch any good manners, genteel behaviour. It can snap the threads of civilised society. So the soldiers follow orders and they shoot one round of CS gas, uh, also known as tear gas, of course, at the crowd. The American Lung Association describes the effects of tear gas as, quote, in general, exposure to tear gas can cause chest tightness, coughing, a choking sensation, wheezing and shortness of breath, in addition to a burning sensation in the eyes, mouth and nose, blurred vision and difficulty swallowing. Tear gas can also cause chemical burns, allergic reactions and respiratory distress. So our crowds, they begin to choke and cough, they fall back from the gate and the scene ends. And then, oh dear, in the next scene, it's one of the bad ones. One of the 
particularly notorious ones, it's the hospital scene. And given that I have the first of many dental surgery appointments on Tuesday, and I'm very nervous, I could gladly have skipped this part. Firstly, the location. We see Ruth as part of a slow-moving, shuffling crowd, trying to make their way up the hospital steps. The scene was filmed at Sheffield Royal Infirmary, which opened in 1797 and closed in 1980. And that is how it was able to be used as a filming location. Much of the old hospital was uh, demolished, but the main building, and the part we see here, as our injured crowd shuffles inwards, still exists as it's a listed building. So the building still looks the same, except uh, like many buildings in what were previously big Victorian industrial cities, it has been sandblasted. So in the film, it looks black. In real life, as we see if you do a Google image search now, it is a a soft, creamy colour. The same thing happened in my own city, Glasgow, in the late 80s and early 90s when Glasgow began to pull out of its decline and spruce itself up. In my childhood, every building in the city centre was black, but now, having been cleaned of all their soot, we see they were were actually red and blonde sandstone. They were just hidden under layers and layers of soot. So Sheffield Royal Infirmary looks the same, except uh, it is now back to its original soft, creamy colour. The other big difference in how it looks now, it's now known as Heritage Park, if you want to do a Google image search. The other big difference in it now is uh, obviously it's changed colour from sooty black to cream. But also there was originally an inscription in gilt lettering on the stonework over the lintel. It read, and we see in the film, the camera actually lingers on it, I was sick and you visited me, verily inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. As the crowd approach the front door of the infirmary, you can vaguely see some thin white bars or what looks like a caged area, one on each side of the door. They were there to protect two statues, one representing the figure of hope and the other of charity. Now, there's no symbolism here. They are simply in place to protect the statues, but obviously, if we wanted to dig for any symbolism... It is apt that in this scene, hope and charity are barred, removed, closed off from the population. Inaccessible. So the crowd shuffle up the steps and into the hospital. No panic and shouting and rioting here, as we saw at the food depot in the previous scene. Instead, this crowd are slow. Obviously they're slow because they're, they're injured and sick. That's why they're there. They are slow, but they are determined. And we see two nurses in the doorway, one of them crying, and they they seem to be trying to hold the crowd back. They're shaking their heads, they're holding up their hands, but there's no way to stop this crowd. And so that made me wonder. In the scene immediately prior to this, we saw a crowd being treated in a very different manner. We saw them being kept out of the food depot by force, with padlocks, barbed wire tear gas and guns. But here, the crowd are allowed to just go wandering right on into the hospital. And there's no one at the door to stop them, except 
two female nurses, one of whom looks tearful, exhausted, desperate. So I wonder, why are there not armed guards at the door of the hospital? Aren't doctors and nurses and the dwindling resources of the NHS as precious as as the food at the food depot? Well, no, it seems that the only thing worthy of being guarded with such force is indeed the stockpiled food. But why? Well, we need food to stay alive. Sure we do, but the injured and the, the bloodied crowd in the hospital, well, they need medical help to stay alive. So what's the difference? As we mentioned before, it comes down, surely, to survival of the fittest. Resources will only be given to those who are tough and hardy and who can survive and make it through under their own steam. So perhaps we can assume that most of the people in this atrocious hospital scene are going to die anyway, or will be permanently disabled and weakened, stricken and hobbled with infections and amputations. So they're as good as dead in the eyes of the authorities, as they will be unable to work to labour, to produce, and therefore they will be unworthy of food. So we see it comes full circle. Everything comes back to food. But I also wondered, according to planning documents for the post-nuclear NHS, which I've seen in the archives, if hospitals would indeed have some kind of armed guard. I know that sounds very alien, but let me explain my thinking here. Prior to a nuclear attack, and this is assuming, of course, that we had an adequate warning period, British hospitals would be cleared. We actually see this happening in threads. Most of the patients sent home and most of the staff dispersed, as would be ambulances and equipment, leaving just a minority of patients in place who were too ill to be moved and, of course, leaving a skeleton staff to treat them. After the attack, when radiation has dropped and movement is permitted, we can assume that survivors will emerge and will be in utterly desperate need of medical treatment. And of course, your instinct would be to go to the hospital. Everyone knows where the local hospital is. But the planning documents said, or they implied rather, that the authorities do not want this. Probably for the reason that we see in threads, because the place will be quickly besieged. So the plan was for a kind of chain to be set up. And you would be passed along this chain according to your medical need and your chances of survival. So the plan was that the injured would not turn up at the hospital, they would go first to their local first aid post, which would be manned by volunteers trained in first aid. They would do the basics and they would then send you away. But if you required deeper care and treatment than a first aid post could provide, they would pass you along the chain to the next stage, which was the casualty collecting centre. That would be staffed by nurses and doctors, and yes, dentists will be roped in there too. At this point, some heavy decisions would be made. Can they treat you there briskly and promptly? If so, good. Especially if you have relatives and friends who brought you in, who can tend to you and do some of the basic nursing. Are you beyond help, or at least beyond the help that the casualty collecting centre can provide? Would it require a whole lot of resources and attention to pull you through? If so, you would probably be put to one side and, yes, left to die. And if you're in a third category, 
that is, you have a very good chance of survival, won't require a whole lot of effort and work, but do need to step up to the level of a hospital, then you would be collected and taken to that hospital. So that plan means that only a small proportion will be moved along the chain, actually making it to the hospital itself. So most people who turn up demanding treatment at the first aid post will never be anywhere near a hospital. But try telling that to the survivors who will be emerging from the shelters, desperate and terrified and in pain. Are we to believe that they will pay attention to a notice pinned to the wall, asking them to please not seek help at the hospital for their severed limbs and their burned skin and their broken back, but to please seek out their nearest first aid point? I assume people would descend en masse at the nearest hospital, regardless of what the bureaucracy might be saying. And so, to have any hope of this plan succeeding, it's probably not impossible to imagine that the hospitals after the bomb would have some kind of guard on the door. Or maybe not. Maybe it does indeed all come down to food. Let the population shuffle from hospital to first aid post to casualty collecting centre and back again, begging and wailing. Who cares? Let those who will die, die. And let us be left with the true survivors. In the meantime, until all the crying dies down, guard the food. The entire peacetime resources of the British Health Service, even if they survived, would be unable to cope with the effects of even the single bomb that's hit Sheffield. Yes, that is true. The BMA, the British Medical Association, produced a lengthy and terrifying report in 1983 called The Medical Effects of Nuclear War, and they came to the same conclusion. The entire NHS could not deal with one nuclear bomb. We're not talking about nuclear war, multiple detonations. We're talking about one single atomic bomb. Here's a quote from the report, although you can flop this book open and find absolute horror on any page. Civilised life as we know it, and the human values and ethical standards upon which the practice of medicine is based, would cease to exist in vast areas of these islands. It would be impossible to run even a basic medical care service without minimal standards of law and order. Survivors would be preoccupied exclusively with the search for food and shelter. They would be unlikely to devote attention to the care of the sick and dying. It must be assumed that NHS personnel will have suffered the same fate as the rest of the population. Their preoccupations are likely to be the paramount ones of personal and family survival. We do not doubt that doctors would wish to give help, even in the midst of such devastation. Nor do we doubt that they would be looked upon by survivors as natural leaders. But their impact on the situation would be minimal. That's an important thing to remember, of course. Um, You might have some kind of awe or respect towards your doctor, maybe. But... um, he or she will have suffered the same way you have. They also might be lying in a heap with their family dead around them. 
We can't just assume that once we reach the doctor, everything will be all right. They are human after all, just like us. As our crowd enter the hospital, we see Ruth. She's in the midst of the crowd and she's glancing over her shoulder, looking around her. I assumed this was a simple act of anxiety and uncertainty. But when I consult my copy of the script, it says she is looking around her for Jimmy. She obviously still has hopes that he's alive. That's another thread that will soon wear thin for her and snap. Of course, we never get confirmation that Jimmy's dead, but we can safely assume that he is. And for those who favour the theory that we spot Jimmy in the film's final scene at the hospital, I have asked Mick Jackson, the man himself, about this persistent theory, and he confirms it is not Jimmy. Stop having hope, people. Snip the thread. Now here's an interesting thing. As the crowd climb the front steps, we see a man in uniform. He's standing at the door to the hospital, with his face to the crowd. So perhaps he was indeed, as my theory goes, out there as some kind of guard or security. But he's been utterly overwhelmed by the crowd, as the nurses have been. But this uh, guard, if that's what he's doing, he isn't wearing a police uniform or a soldier's camouflage. He's wearing a navy blue jacket with epaulettes on the shoulder. He has a pale blue shirt underneath and a dark blue tie. And he has a grimy bandage over his head. Now, who does that sound like? It sounds like our traffic warden. I wonder if this is him, and when we see him later in the film, in his iconic scene, the bandage, of course, has covered the upper half of his face, so maybe the the burn or laceration he has endured has become an infection and spread over the whole top of his face. Or maybe nothing. Maybe this is just another extra in what looks like a traffic warden outfit. But it might be him, as when we see him later, he is also guarding a venue and trying to control a crowd. Only this time with a gun and a hat on and a the bandage over his face. So I don't think it is him. The traffic warden is too iconic to be wasted in another scene, especially one which shows his face and shows that it's actually a kind and weary face. And also a scene where he seems to be trying to help and guide the crowds. He's not patrolling a fence here with a gun. Or maybe he just represents the fact that a bunch of traffic wardens were hauled into service to be doing patrols and crowd control. And this is just another one. Not our iconic, terrifying traffic warden. Also, just after we see this uh, other traffic warden, we hear someone in the crowd outside the hospital calling a name. Someone is calling out Mandy. And you might remember when Ruth takes her terrible walk through Sheffield, a girl approaches her, obviously dazed and in shock, saying, Have you seen our Mandy? So it's a horrible thought that this girl might still be roaming the ruins, forever calling out for Mandy. And now we're inside the hospital. No electricity, of course, so there are no lights on. Everyone is just piled and stacked and bundled in the filthy, dim corridors waiting for help. 
And no one is angry, no one is complaining, no grumbles about waiting times. Again, I suppose this is disaster syndrome, which we've talked about in other episodes. People are generally shocked and in a state of near total apathy. However, there is at least a small sign here that some kind of triage or organisation is underway because we can see that some people sitting in the corridor have what look like pink raffle tickets pinned to their chests. So that implies uh, like a, a New York daily, they've been given a ticket and told, you know, this is the order in which you'll be seen. It's this same infamous uh, and distressing hospital scene which helped Mick Jackson realise he indeed had to make threads. If you listen to my interview with him, he was in the early stages of putting the film together when he heard that ABC in America were planning their own nuclear war film. They would get there first and they, of course, would have tons more money. So he thought, OK, I'll, I'll watch their version and if they do it right, then there's no need for me to press ahead and make threads. He, of course, watched the day after and thankfully realised, no, this story does need to be told. And he, in our interview, references the day after's hospital scenes as one of his main motivations for continuing with Threads, because their hospital scenes are relatively clean and organised and the hospital has power. Compare it with what Mick Jackson is showing us here. Blood trickling down the cold stone steps, screams bouncing down the dim corridors, people hunched on the floor with horrific burns. And more importantly, when the camera takes us into the operating theatres, we see, once and for all, how reduced and basic and barbaric medicine has become. We hear howls. And we hear screams. Because, of course, there's no anaesthetic. There's no pain relief. Everything will have run out. We see nurses tearing up bedsheets with their teeth to use as bandages. We see a box of table salt being tipped into a bucket of water. That's your infection control, salty water. We see lumps of glass being picked out of skin with tweezers. And worst of all, we see a man being held down on a hospital bed. And he has a piece of folded cloth clamped to his teeth. He is biting down hard on it. He is grimacing and whining with pain. What's happening to him? The camera shows us, very briefly, a surgeon bent over the table, diligently sawing. And that, for me, is the, the worst part of the hospital scene. Having a limb sawn off without anaesthetic. It's, I, I can hardly think about it. It is horrific. I've read about such operations in a book uh, published a few years ago now, which I recommend to you. It's called The Butchering Arch by Lindsay Fitzharris. And it's about Joseph Lister and the dreadful world of Victorian surgery. And of course, how Joseph Lister changed it. Uh, good book, very colourful, very vivid, but you do need a strong stomach to read parts of it. If there was um, apathy and resignation out in the hospital corridors, in the operating theatre um, and treatment areas, this all falls apart. This is where the wild screams are. And also, there are people crowding in 
And as with the nurses at the front door, we see what I assume is a surgeon trying to hold people back. I assume these people are the friends and relatives of those who are howling, those who are screaming. Perhaps they're trying to rush in to comfort them or to help or demand pain relief, and of course there is none. We thankfully leave the hell of the operating theatre and are back out in the quiet, dim, packed corridor. Here's the narrator who tells us all how futile it is. By this time, without drugs, water or bandages, without electricity or medical support facilities, there is virtually no way a doctor can exercise his skill. As a source of help or comfort, he's little better equipped than the nearest survivor. Well, that's the end of that horrible four minutes. Like I said, I have the dentist again on Tuesday and this was not the best thing to watch to help me stay calm about it. If you want to join my Patreon, I'm at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And let me thank all my patrons who have joined or increased their pledges in the past week. Thank you to Kevin Drobetch, Amy Wilson, Neil Wilkins, Scott A. Joseph, MD, Alexandra Aiello, Andrea Hanna, Kirsty Wallen, Blixa, Alexi Panter and Vicky Strudwick. Thank you to everyone who's offered support, either through tooth tips, joining Patreon, or even just supportive tweets saying, I've been there in that dentist chair, and once they've jagged you or sedated you, it's not so bad. So thank you everyone, and I'll be back next Monday with another episode. <laughs>